1: Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Liz. Hi there. Today we're going to be talking about farming. This is um a sector that produces all the food in this country, obviously, but the work that creates this food, that feeds this country, has so often been undervalued in terms of pay and working conditions. And Liz here has um, some firsthand experience On that subject. Liz, can you just to start us off, tell us a bit about your history farming, trying to grow food?
2: Well, I started farming for a living in 1980, and my farm was the very first community supported agriculture farm in um, Western New York, the second or third in New York State, depending upon whose story you believe. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I um, together with the woman who did the first CSA in the whole country, Robin Van N, I wrote a book about CSA called "Sharing the Harvest."
1: Just um, for the sake of l- listeners and, frankly, myself, w- what does CSA stand for?
2: It stands for Community Supported Agriculture. Um, the The reason Community Supported Agriculture exists is that really since the say 1960. Uh, the prices that farmers have gotten have gone down and down so that the prices don't cover the actual costs of producing food, particularly if you want to use organic and ecological methods that take good care of nature and work together with natural forces. There are lots of ways of making the farm work production cheaper, um, but if you want to really do it, it in a way that respects nature and produces the highest quality of food, there is no way that the prices you can get in the market in the United States cover the cost of that. So I when I came into farming, I was very aware that in the late 70s, there was a tremendous farming crisis going on. There were farmer suicides. There were special hotlines set up to help farmers. Um... There were cavalcades of tractors. In 1979, something like 10,000 tractors went to Washington, D.C. to demonstrate on behalf of parity pricing and supply management. Parity pricing was a system that was established during the 1930s at the height of the Depression to allow farmers to receive prices from the marketplace that covered their costs. So starting in 1933, parity pricing was implemented. And to keep the price up, farmers were required to reduce how much they produced and put the extra land that wasn't being used for crops into conservation practices. And that is how the United States pulled out of the dust bowl All those thousands and thousands of acres that were grown to cover crops or hay and put in um, properly um, the proper direction of growing the crops on a field so that um, rainfall wouldn't go rushing downhill through rows that were set up from the top to the bottom of the hill instead of across the hill. After World War II, as corporate control increased, there was a constant um, pressure on the government to reduce parity pricing. And the the main um, farm bill uh, by 1956 was really departing from parity and lowering the prices that farmers got. But that struggle took a number of years. And really wasn't totally complete until 1996, when parity disappeared completely from the farm bill.
1: Now, now, who benefits from uh, a loss of parity pricing? You know, why would corporate interests uh, push for that?
2: Well, if they don't have to, if the corporations like Archer Daniels Midland and Tyson Foods and Purdue and JBS, the big companies that are buying from farms, don't have to pay the full price. They are getting a huge subsidy. The cheap prices have really been a benefit to those corporations. There's been an enormous transfer of of wealth from the countryside to those big corporations and the subsidies that were implemented in the seventies and eighties come nowhere near to covering the prices that were paid in the marketplace by the corporate buyers under the parity system.
1: And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this trend among many others has resulted in a big consolidation in the agriculture world industry. Um, It's not, A lot fewer family-owned farms and a lot more or a lot larger share in the marketplace of these big agribusiness firms. Is that right?
2: That's right. Except the farming, the production of the food um, is still mainly in the hands of farmers and farm families. Mm -hmm. It's too risky for corporations. They don't want to do that. So they leave that in the hands of the farmers and just control everything else. Under parity, taxpayers did not pay subsidies to farmers. The better price that farmers got came from the marketplace, from the corporate buyers. And because there was supply management, together with storage of uh, crops like greens and beans, the government and the farm stored the extra corn and beans that weren't released on the marketplace. And when prices got too high, there was crop to release to keep the prices adjusted so that consumers didn't have to pay a higher price. So when that whole system was removed, what do farmers do? Unlike other businesses, if you're producing, I don't know, lamps, and the price of lamps goes down, goes down, you're going to produce fewer of them because you can't sell them and you want to get a decent price for your lamps. But with farmers, it's counterintuitive, but it's just the opposite. When prices go down, farmers grow more, more corn, more soybeans, more other crops, um, so that they can capture the, the slim margin and stay in business. And that is the the key reason why there's this vast overproduction. And the big beneficiaries of that are the big corporations that deal in food and farming products. And those corporations have become more and more consolidated and, and integrated from where they buy the crop to shipping it, To manufacturing it, to trading abroad. Um, And there's lots of money in food. It's just being creamed off by those corporate buyers and producers for their shareholders. And um, the people who are hurt by that are the farmers, the people who work on farms. And consumers who have to pay higher prices, the more consolidation. It's really been shown very clearly that the fewer entities control a market, the higher the price consumers have to pay and the lower the price the farmers get.
3: Liz, something you said in there, you talked about how uh, corporations don't want to take on the risk of farming. That that gets us something that we've said many, many times on Punching Out before, that essentially actual work is always too much to ask for for these like finance types and whatever they only want sure money um and and it's just kind of sitting here blowing my mind uh how basic the transfer of wealth is here um just because coming at this from a historical perspective you always hear about how you know before the middle ages people were too stupid to do crop rotation or whatnot and it turns out that the reason conservation practices um, haven't been uh, or, or have kind of fallen out of, of use for a lot of places is is not because of any lack of technology or whatnot, but it's because it serves the bottom line. And it doesn't even serve the farmer's bottom line. Ultimately, it serves, you know, Conagra or Monsanto or what have you. Uh, so that's pretty sobering.
2: Exactly. Those big companies are getting from 13 to 35% return on their investment. A farm that's doing extremely well might get 2% return on investment. But most farms in this country are in debt and the debt has been growing to a dangerous level and that is why you see some farmers committing suicide. And that is why you see most of the farmers, I mean a few, um, the farmers in in the Rochester area, most of the farmers have an off-farm job, either themselves or someone else in the family, and that's where they get their benefits, their health insurance. Farms aren't making enough money to cover health insurance for themselves or for the people who work on the farms. And because back in the 30s, A really horrible deal was made in order to get the National Labor Relations Act passed at all in 1935. Farm workers were left out of that, as well as domestic workers. And at that time, most of the farm workers were African Americans. Increasingly, in recent years, that shifted from African Americans to people from Mexico and uh, Central America but it's meant that that racism is baked into the whole food system. That people who work on farms do not have the protected right to organize, and the FLISA, which is the Fair Labor Standards Act that established that workers get time and a half for overtime, over 40 hours of work per week, that does not apply to farm workers. So farm workers don't get time and a half for overtime. They're doing some of the hardest work in this country, and they get straight time no matter how many hours they work. And it wasn't until this past year that New York State passed the Farmworker Fair Labor Practices Act that implemented time and a half for overtime over sixty hours for farmworkers here. The problem with that is. New York State has a higher straight time um, minimum rate to pay farm workers than the neighboring states. And the neighboring states don't have time and a half for overtime. California now does. And over five years, they've gone from time and a half over 60 hours to I think next year will finally be time and a half over 40 hours. So that will have an impact on farm prices net nationally. But the main markets with whom New York State farmers are in competition don't have the same costs as New York farmers.
1: I'm struck by the, the um, historical disparity that you describe, and, and that's obviously a product of the fact that in the 1930s, when the New Deal was being passed, the Democratic Party was a... Coalition of you know trade union interests, but also Southern Democrats who had a vested interest in keeping labor costs low, and they used uh, racism to uh, accomplish that task. You know, so much of th- that disparity, as you rightly point out, was. A- result of the fact that farm work was disproportionately done by um, Black workers. I want to go back to something that you had mentioned earlier about overproduction. Um, one of the stories that struck me early on in um, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, you know, when we were all getting used to life in quarantine, um, there, was, there was a story in the New York Times and a few other articles described a similar trend about uh, farmers' Effectively plowing under their crops or dumping all their milk, um, killing off their animals because they just didn't have a a place to sell that food anymore. When um, schools and businesses were shut down, some these you know schools buy um, all this food for their lunches and when those weren't being given out, these farmers had all this food that they couldn't sell. And at the same time, there were people going hungry. It's it's one of the great paradoxes of capitalism, I guess.
2: Well, the problem that those farmers faced was they were selling into a, a supply chain that was radically differentiated between businesses that supply supermarkets and businesses that supply institutions and restaurants. So farmers whose milk was going into small containers for schools or um, containers that went to restaurants lost their market. Farmers who were selling into um, processing companies that supplied the stores didn't have enough because people suddenly were buying more. So that supply chain was just just highly um, discombobulated in terms of the shift that happened in the marketplace when so many institutions and restaurants were shut down. On the other hand, our local farms that sell through farmers markets or community-supported agriculture or farm stands that sell directly to people suddenly were deluged by um, Orders and sold out and were at pains to produce more and as much as they possibly could. The problem was doing that cost them um, uh, unusual pr- you know expenses that they had never had before in a lot of what sold at the farmers' markets had to be pre-packaged so that it could be delivered no touch to people who would pay online and then just dart into the market for a few minutes and pick up their bag of whatever they had pre-ordered. That's been relaxed a little bit as people learn to wear gloves and keep their distance. And I was at the Brighton Farmers Market this morning and it really felt pretty safe. People were at least six feet from one another and everybody was masked and when you bought something from a farm stand, they were wearing gloves. You were wearing gloves so nobody touched the money and (laughs) we figured out a way to do that safely. But local farms pivoted very quickly to these direct sales, um, investing in online ordering systems, that are really quite expensive, and having to do a lot more packaging. So previously, community-supported agriculture farms where members would come to the farm and walk around a big table which had the food spread out in big boxes and assemble their own box, um, bag of vegetables. Suddenly that farm had to package up all those shares into boxes or bags that then members would come and pick up so that there would be no contact. So it just meant more work and more expense for the local farms. And none of that was covered by the um, stimulus money that was paid out to farms. The first batch of farm stimulus money went almost entirely to the very biggest farms, Um, the farms that the current administration of Number 45 had really screwed in the tariff situation with China and um, other countries. So the administration was paying those farms off to keep them voting for, um, for Trump in the election. But... Farms were paid according to how much they lost during March and April. And local farms weren't losing anything because they weren't selling yet, most of them. So in the later um, stimulus packets, that was adjusted somewhat. But still, most of that stimulus money has gone to the biggest farms.
3: I wanted to give uh, uh, what I think is a somewhat instructive contrast uh, if we're talking about how farms respond to disasters, um, I'm from Puerto Rico. After Hurricane Maria hit, there were a number of, um, there. there's already a small organic farming community. My parents were members of a CSA when I was uh, in college. But I guess there was this big explosion in uh, trying to diversify the crop fields because at the time, almost everything was in plantains, coffee, a little bit of sugar, i think some pineapples and and that kind of thing. So they tried to diversify by growing, you know, greens, mushrooms and um other things that were fairly easily grown in what is volcanic fertile soil with a lot of possibilities. And unfortunately, what happened then in that case is that the financial oversight board pressured the Puerto Rican legislature into adopting a bill that basically punishes farmers for producing more than one crop uh, so that they could maintain the sort of big coffee farms, could have access to as much land as they needed to have their style of farming so that our local equivalent of Tyson can continue to get as much chicken as they possibly can. And the other products that were already traditional were maintained. Which uh that, that note really struck me about uh Liz. You talked about the the racism being baked into this. And that was something that I don't think if it had happened up here, I think would have been a a a much bigger deal. But obviously parts of the country really get hit by disasters, not an entire place. Um, but it was it just went by without attention until Puerto Rican local farmers were speaking out about it to American authors who could tell the story in English to American audiences, and even then, it's barely present. Um, It's absolutely been the case that um, when there are chances for farmers for the first time to take the reins and really start determining uh, what their place, what their land is going to produce... Uh, that American, not just corporations, but uh, the the state itself, puts its thumb back on the scale uh, to ensure that you know diversification is controlled and that you that the U.S. economy gets exactly what it wants to get out of each part of the country.
2: I didn't. <laughs> the Puerto Rican story is really amazing as a colony that's been well, together with Hawaii, just used in the most horrible way. Um, I'm in touch with Boricua, which is um, a network of organic farmers in Puerto Rico. They're members of the um, N- National Food Sovereignty Alliance, and I, as, as a member of the Northeast Organic Farming Association, I'm a member of the National Family Farm Coalition and the Food Sovereignty Alliance People are also members of that coalition, so we're all in communication with one another. So I've heard the stories of the Puerto Rican um, organic farmers who, when the disaster struck, really went around helping one another as a group. They would go to whichever farm needed to be rebuilt uh, because they were smashed by a series of hurricanes. Referring back to Tyson. Naomi Klein has written about disaster capitalism. Tyson is an outstanding example of that. Um, If you recall, or you may not recall, but Tyson ran a a full-page ad in the New York Times back in March or April saying that um, the COVID crisis was going to um, destroy the supply of chicken and pork and there would be a shortage of meat, and it was really, you know, just a horrible um, disaster pending. And that was totally manipulated by them. It was at a time when they actually had lots of frozen meat. They shipped more to China during that period, lowered the price they paid to farmers, and raised the price they made to consumers. So their return per pound of meat was higher during those months than ever before in their history.
1: I'm, I'm very glad you brought up Tyson because they, they happen to have been in the news this past week. And as always with Tyson, it's not for anything good. Um, there was a lawsuit filed in federal court alleging that managers at Tyson plants had among other things placed bets on how many of their workers would contract covid nineteen how many would test positive um, and that they had ordered employees to report for work while um, not providing them with any sort of protective gear to you know keep them safe from this pandemic and these uh meat processing plants have always been dangerous places to work but they've the conditions have really been heightened during um this pandemic, which is one of the reasons why, um, if you'll recall, the Trump administration intervened to require them to stay open because there was a fear um, that they were just not going to have enough workers to do the work because so many yeah, were while getting Well, they were sick. manipulating
2: the whole market. I mean, Tyson was playing on everybody's nerves doing that on, deliberately. Yeah. Hmm.
1: We're going to take a little break here. But when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about what the Trump administration has done to harm farm workers and their wages. Um, We'll be back.
0: You're listening to Punching Out on W-A-Y-O-L-P Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.
1: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Liz. Hello. We spent the first segment talking about um, the work of farming in the United States and um, the various ways in which farmers have been receiving the butt end of the global economy over the past few decades in terms of you know not being able to sell their food at a price that will allow them to make ends meet. And I want to spend this next segment talking a bit just about the last four years under Donald Trump and the things his administration has done to, as always, uh, make things worse for workers, uh, in this case, farm workers. Um, Just this past week, there was a story about the administration's effort to cut farm worker wages. Um, There's this uh, program called the H-2A visa. Um, Liz, do you know anything about that?
2: Yeah, H-2A visas have been in existence for 20, 25 years, and there weren't very many farms using those H-2A visas until the past couple of years. The numbers have really increased. It went from something like 50,000 nationally to over 200,000 H-2A workers um, this year. The H-2A workers are brought in just for a season, and there are five different government agencies involved in um, bringing them to this country. It's a very elaborate process. Farmers that engage in it have to do a great deal of paperwork, and they are responsible for paying for the travel of those farm workers from their country to the farm and back again. The, the H2A workers can only work on the one farm that imported them and then they have to go home. They can't go to another farm unless they've been brought to this country by a farmer organization that has special um, authorization to share those workers among the members of that association. The um, rate of pay that they get is the um, average pay scale for all of the farm workers in a region. So H2A workers are paid different amounts in different states, but in New York State it's now about the same as the uh, minimum wage, which is I think $12.80 an hour. It's been lower in different years in California than in New York, but now it's higher there as well.
1: Yes um this I'm reading from an NPR article by uh, Dan Charles. Um, it states uh, in North Carolina the current rate is 1267 an hour. It's about one dollars less in Florida and two dollars more in California. And to quote from the article, in recent weeks the Trump administration stepped in with some changes to the program. First, it abruptly canceled the survey of farm wages that has been used to calculate those minimum wages. Justin Flores, vice president of a union group called the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, which represents some H-2A workers, had an idea of what was coming. My first thought was, the Trump administration is coming after our members' wages and financial well-being. Then, last week, the administration announced a new regulation that freezes the wages for H-2A workers at this year's level for the next two years. Starting in 2023, according to the new rule, wages will be tied to a national index of worker pay that's generally been rising more slowly than farm worker wages.
2: Well, the farm worker problem is much deeper and worse than just what the Trump administration is trying to do now. Both the Democrat, the Obama administration, and the Trump administration have increased the number of people that they've deported, their pressure on the undocumented. The pool of skilled farm workers in this country has grown smaller and smaller. Obama was deporting 400,000 people a year. Mm -hmm. So that number has increased, I believe, under Trump, but it's kept up really steadily, and fewer people have been able to come to this country. Most of the farm labor, more than half, according to the Department of Labor, has been undocumented workers. So as a supply of undocumented workers gets smaller, more farmers have engaged in the H2A process. They didn't do it before because it's more expensive. You you have to pay H2A workers more than you have to pay an undocumented worker. And in addition, as I said, you have to pay for their transportation to the United States and also house them on your farm. So many farms in California couldn't use the H-2A program because they didn't have housing for them. And in rural areas in California, it's not at all easy to construct housing on your farm. There was an incident where a farm started to build some and someone burned it all down. Uh, People do not want a big pool of male farm workers uh, in their rural paradise. But in any case, because farm wages are low, because they're not covered by any of the protections, because it's really hard and also highly skilled work, American citizens don't want to do it. It used to be the farms in New York State um, had a pool of either high school kids or local people who would come and work on their farms, that pool of local people has gotten smaller and smaller as um, you could make more per hour working in fast food, um, you know, in some fast food joint than you could working on a farm. So why work that hard? Farm work is considered unskilled but it's highly skilled. It's a particular kind of physical skill. And in this country, we have a very bad attitude towards physical labor. But the people who can do the kind of farm work that's done on the biggest farms, where you have 10, 12 hours of the same repeated harvesting of lettuce, picking it and packing it into boxes, harvesting watermelons, lifting them, carrying them to the truck um, over and over and over again. There are very few people who have the skill and the stamina to do that work. And that is why undocumented people have been the the pool of labor in recent years, and then more and more H-2A workers, because it's desperate people from other countries who can um, be pressured into doing that labor.
1: What you're describing is sort of a a system that incentivizes the use of this labor because it is more vulnerable to exploitation.
2: That's right, exactly. On a farm like the one that I ran, there's, there's never 12 hours of the same repetitive work. A smaller, diversified farm, on an average day, would have four, five, six different jobs that people do. It's much easier on people's bodies than that industrialized, large-scale farming. And the Democrats are as guilty as the Republicans in trying to make the H-2A program friendlier to the farmers. So there was a bill that was passed in the House uh, last year, the um, Farm Labor Modernization Act, which freed farmers from having to pay for transportation all the way from workers' homes. They would only have to pay the transportation from the um, consulate in the country where the worker signed up, and. Then there were other things that made um, the whole situation easier for farmers. It could be done online. We didn't have to deal with five different agencies. It made the H2A program smoother for farmers, but less beneficial for farm workers. And it was that bill that was Democrat introduced that actually changed the formula for calculating the pay. And then The um, Department of Agriculture picked it up under Trump and has implemented that as a Republican measure. But it was a joint bill, both Republican and and Democrat, that passed it in the House. A similar bill has not been passed in the Senate yet, so um, it wasn't legislated into law.
3: Um, I'm glad that you mentioned the part where they enabled farmers to fill everything out online because otherwise, this sounds, this doesn't sound like modernization at all. It just sounds like we're actually kind of rolling back uh, on labor systems, which again is a point we've made on punching out that every, you know, every corporation is just mad that they have to pay workers at all. And when you, when you're trying to ensure a transfer of wealth as big as what you're talking about. To the big farms and uh, to the corporations that sell food products one of the ways you do that or one of the only ways you can do that part of me is, is' eventually going to have to be to cut labor costs because you can't as you've mentioned throughout this program you can't actually raise the price the prices because that would bring the hammer of corporate America you know down on whatever politician tried to introduce that it it's very. It's very sad that we're in a moment where essentially farm workers are going to get it coming and going from both parties because uh, the farmers are on our side of the border uh, to the extent that that thing should ever exist and they need help you know, getting return on their investment, but we're not going to do it by the mechanisms that we've already done it and should do it. We're going to do it by instead basically pushing the abuse downhill further. It's uh, – again, just from a historical perspective, it, it's great to know that nothing has changed in that regard, just absolutely zero, except you can do it on a website. Pardon me. Sorry. One change. Forgot.
1: Well, in, in many ways, this sort of mirrors what we've seen in other industries in terms of having a race to the bottom, and the winner ends up being whoever can work the cheapest. Um.
2: Well, actually, there was one change in that law that is an improvement from the point of view of at least some of the H2A workers and the farmers who employ them. Um, the way it works now, all H2A workers that you hire on a farm have to get the same rate of pay. So there's no way of paying them more if they are a specially good worker or acquire new skills. You can't differentiate between an H-2A worker who's driving a tractor or one who's picking, you know, lettuces. Um, the Farmworker Fair um, Modernization Act allowed for that differentiation. And I think, you know, that, that is a measure that makes sense. Um, an H-2A worker who is doing more skilled work could be paid more than someone who is a you know a beginner who is here for the first year but my hope is that in some radiant day ahead of us we won't be dependent in this country on people who are desperate to take that kind of work who will travel and leave their families and come to this country either to work Undocumented or to um, come as an H2A worker. We need to shift the way um, the money is used in the, the whole food system so that farmers are paid prices that cover the costs of paying themselves a living wage and paying a living wage to all of the people who work for them with a decent benefits package. Because farm work on a small scale farm especially if you can only do it for eight hours a day, is lovely work. It's very enjoyable to be outside in nature, growing food that's high quality, especially if you can be producing it for people whom you get to know. So it's like feeding your friends, In my life as an organic farmer doing community-supported agriculture where I got to know everybody who, all my customers, my food wasn't shipped off to some uh, impersonal market. I could look in the eye of every person who um, was getting my food and I met their children and their aunts and uncles and their grandparents. Uh, Really enjoyable and satisfying work farm work can be like that. <laughs> the whole system could be changed by breaking it down into many, many small, smaller scale farms that are feeding the people right in their region. And then farms that are at a greater distance can ship their grains or their beans or the you know, the things that can be grown in, in larger quantities more efficiently. But still have some contact with the people who are eating their food and getting a payment for their work that allows them to plant cover crops, rotate their crops, integrate livestock with the crops so that the farm has a range a diversity of crops and is not dependent on crop insurance or payments from the government. And smaller-scale farms don't buy insurance. Our insurance is growing a diversity of crops so that whatever the weather, there will be some crops that will do better and other crops that may not do as well, but you will have something to sell. And with community-supported agriculture, the members actually agree to share the risk with you. So if you your carrot crop fails they won't get any carrots in their share that year, but they'll get other things and they will still pay you the same amount so that you can go on to farm the next year and not have to borrow money to start up.
1: I'm When you talk about um, how meaningful and how satisfying this work can be, I'm, I'm struck by, again, the uh, line from David Graber about how the the more meaningful your work is to society, the less you can expect to be paid for it generally. Um, That that holds true for education, for nursing. You know, we we as a society, as a free market, so to speak, have not chosen to value these things in any real way. Um, And instead the money goes towards companies that don't provide, um, you know, the food we need to, to live, you know, what what could be more meaningful than farming? And yet, here's how we treat them. Um, I, I want to take a little break here before I get too off on a tangent. Um, when, we come, <laughs> when we come back, um, I want to, we'd like to end the show on a positive note. I'm, I, I would like to discuss maybe what could be done to improve the lives of farmers, their workers, and make for better conditions.
0: You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show.
1: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah, it's me, and Liz. Hi hey, everybody. <laughs> We've spent the last uh, 40 minutes or so talking about the work being done by farmers and farm workers and the ways in which they've gotten the short end of the stick. I want to spend the last, you know, 10 minutes or so that we have here talking about what things could look like if say we had our way. We've talked about the ways in which the current system is failing these workers. What would a better system look like? What are some changes, small or big, that could make for a better world for farmers? And Liz, I want to start off by posing that question to you as the person with um, experience in this field.
2: Well, first of all, we have to depart from the basic U.S. policy of cheap food and recreate Parity pricing with supply management for the 21st century, which would eliminate the racism that was baked into it during the Depression and institute fair prices from the marketplace that cover farmers' costs of production so that farmers can afford to invest in ecological practices. And then as much as possible, people in a, in a region like Rochester should be buying directly from the farms right around here. There's a, a good food purchasing program that's been passed in Buffalo and could be passed everywhere in the state that gets institutions buying more of their food from area farms. We have to increase that so that most of the food comes from New York farms rather than being shipped in from other parts of the country and other parts of the world. We have to stop shipping food except for, you know, special treats that we can't grow in this country. But the rest should be grown here. And then let the farmers in those other countries use their land for producing food for themselves. Something like 70% of the people all over the world are being fed by small-scale agroecological farms. Those farms have to get the investments and be allowed to flourish so that people are fed locally and there's real food sovereignty and security. And then once we're getting food from farms in New York State, we can also make sure that as more and more Family scale farms are developed that those farms belong to people who look like the residents of the state. So the people of color have the proper percentage of, of the land um, and can grow food for their for their and, and all communities around us. We need to change from the system that's like 98% of the farmers are white. So land should be owned and resources for farming reapportioned for among people of color, indigenous people and African Americans and Latinos. So we have to figure out a way to let that happen. And then when farms are getting decent prices, they can afford to do to really grow high quality food. In a farm like mine, the nutrient density of the food that we were able to produce by selling directly to people who were willing to pay me a premium price for organically grown, certified organic food. Um, when you have healthy soil, the microbes really know how to feed crops. There millions of years of um, evolution have gone into those microbes knowing how to feed your crops. You can have crops that are way more nutrient-dense than food that's grown on a massive industrial scale. So people can eat less, lose weight, be healthier, get more exercise, and then the farm work itself on a smaller scale farm Is more enjoyable for the people who engage in it. And working on a farm can be a good career. Some people will want to manage farms, other people may just want to run the greenhouse or be in charge of planting or running the farmer's market. Um, It can be done as a cooperative venture. Among younger people, there are more worker-owned cooperatives being formed to run farms, and we can figure out how to do that and get the support of local people who will be appreciating and thriving on this more nutrient-dense food.
1: When you talk about the the ways in which uh, so much food is shipped nowadays, it doesn't come from local areas, that has a real... Environmental cost—you know, when food gets on a truck, you know those trucks emit carbon that ends up in the atmosphere and contributes to you know the much broader problem of global warming, which threatens you know farms in a real way in this country.
2: But we've kept food cheap in this country; it's cheaper. Uh, middle-class people at least pay a smaller percentage of their income than people in any other country. And we've kept it cheap in a number of ways. One is by paying farm workers so little. But another is by farm products being the ones that have been dealt away in the so-called free trade agreements that we've made with other countries by opening up our markets to food that is shipped in. So rather than growing all of our tomatoes in the United States which we're perfectly capable of doing, a large percentage of the tomatoes are shipped in from Mexico and other countries, in many cases from farms that are run by American agribusinesses, but using the much cheaper labor that they get by growing them in Mexico. And that's just one example. The United States used to produce all of our own juice from fruit that's was grown in the United States. Now, most of the juice that you drink is shipped in, in the form of concentrate from other countries. It makes it cheaper in every way, cheaper in quality and cheaper in price.
3: I was going to say purely from a consumer perspective, um, if none of the stuff that we've said yet convinces you, um, a while back, my my wife and I started, um, We we became members of a local farm share program. And, um, my wife and I, I didn't grow up with a lot of green vegetables in my diet and my wife doesn't like them very much. But after a few months of having, uh, this produce in, she said, you know, I finally understand why people do like this stuff because it's, it, it even forget the nutrient density, just the taste is completely different because you're growing it. Uh, in an entirely different way, where you're not trying to breed the tomato that's going to grow the biggest and look the prettiest on a grocery store shelf, you're um, you're you're really allowing for that um, that biodiversity and that variance to produce good food. And um, certainly for me, I mentioned that I didn't have a lot of greeny uh, greens in my diet as a kid. Not greenies; those are what pictures took in the '70s. Um, I. Remember how often food that was typical of Puerto Rico was being shipped in from elsewhere, and how much that was part of the colonial mindset that we weren't even allowed to grow the foods that we're famous for, or that are, you know, in in some ways native to the island. Really, uh, and and I I feel like that is a wider scale thing here where we have created these food deserts and so on by not having, by not utilizing uh, the land that we have in, in the best possible way.
2: Now, what you said about the food that you're getting from that local farm tasting better, that little farm is probably using varieties that aren't sold in the supermarket because they don't ship and store. Something that has also been consolidated to an enormous degree is the control of the seed supply. Just four or five companies control most of the seed that's sold all over the world. And we're fortunate in um, the Rochester region that there are a few local seed companies, um, Fruition Seeds down in Naples and Turtle Tree Seeds in um, uh, Copake, New York, that are growing varieties of vegetables that are produced organically for growing on organic farms. And the seed is grown by organic farmers and selected for varieties that do better in our region, that taste better, and that have higher nutritional value rather than higher um, shipping qualities, which is how a lot of the varieties are selected for the supermarkets. Control over our seed supply is a really important thing that has to be changed together with breaking up the big food corporations because they're also seed owners as well.
3: It sounds like in a lot of ways, the things that will fix uh, our agricultural situation are the same policies that we need to advocate in general. I mean, obviously, there's going to be little wrinkles here and there. But it it sounds like what we're advocating for here is the same stuff that we have to advocate for every industry, which is give more control to the people doing the work.
2: Yeah, I'm hoping that over the next decade, the Green New Deal will bring those changes to people who are working in all sectors. And there needs to be a just transition for people in agriculture. For the farmers who are stuck in the treadmill of industrial production, they're still farmers. And most of the land, or a lot portion of the land that they're using is rented. So allow them, help them, support them in transitioning to a different, more diversified agriculture, while we take all that rented land and share it among many smaller farms. And then... Change the way pricing is done, depart from free trade, so called, to fair trade, so that we only import the products that we really need and we stop undercutting markets in other countries by shipping cheap, cheap food that undercuts the say, the corn market in Mexico. One of the reasons so many Mexicans came here was they were farmers back in Mexico. And when the um, Northeast Free Trade Agreement, so-called, was passed, they were driven off their farms by the price of corn getting so low that they couldn't afford to grow it there. And they had to come work on farms here. So it's all interconnected. (laughs)
1: We're running a bit against the clock here but um I want to say thank you Liz for coming on and joining us. Um you've taught me a lot and I hope listeners have learned a lot from this past hour as well. Same.
3: This has been outrageously informative.
2: Well, thank you for having me and what people can do is buy from your local farms, buy organic whether or certified organic or agroecological, biodynamic, permaculture support our local farms, garden yourself, learn about it, and buy local seed, and we can change the system.
1: It's a wonderful note to end on. Um, For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. I'm Liz. (laughs) This is Punching Out. out! out!
0: out! You've been listening to Punching Out! Out,